Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. God's still changing lives, amen? Jerry and Scott, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, they're going to be up here at the stage after the service. Uh, they're leading a small group on marriage, and if you're interested in that, they'd love to connect with you on that. But uh, what a testimony that God's power is not just something we read about in a book from a long time ago, but that God's power is at work. And he can take broken things, he can mend them back together, he can take things that are not and make them things that are. And I think about the words that I got when I first saw that video, I got it sent to me uh, just this week, and, and I just thought they were at one time, they were just trying to survive and like hang on as a couple, and now they're trying to serve, serve other people that might be in that same spot or help people from not being in that spot. And uh, just a testimony to God's grace and his power and he changes. We talk about all the time as a church. We connect people to Jesus for life change. And God's changing lives. He's still doing it. And it reminds me when I see their story that everybody has a story. Everybody who walks through the doors this morning, everybody who's sitting in this room has a story. If you're like me, sometimes you prejudge people's stories. I only know what it's like to live my life. I can't tell you for sure what it's like to live yours. But I know sometimes I see people and I think, oh, I know what they're like. I know what they're, how they ended up where they're at and all that kind of stuff. And then you talk to them. And you're wrong. It's one of God's tools to humble us. And I know where we're at as a church. It's easy to come to church and and think, well, there's so many people here I don't know. And then you kind of go into isolation. Can I challenge you today uh, to get to know somebody else's story? Maybe talk to somebody you didn't know already and perhaps go to lunch. And just if you're getting to know somebody, just ask them, what is your story? And everybody's got one. And so I, I hope that you'll get to know some different folks in our church, not live in isolation, and realize that everybody's story is a testimony to God's grace. Amen? All right, we're going to open up the scriptures and pick up where we left off last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here's something scary, though. The passage we're going to look at today actually has a verse in it that says it's possible to preach the gospel in a way that empties the gospel of its power. And so we're going to pray that we don't do that. I don't do that, that when you're sharing the gospel, it's at a coffee shop or however it is that you share the gospel, that you don't do that. And, and so I'm just going to pray for us, and we're going to open up the scriptures and keep going in this series we started last week, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll start in verse 17. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. And uh, God, you use us as your vessels, and we are just vessels in jars of clay. We're fragile. We're broken. we got problems. But God, will you use that and our weaknesses and all that stuff to, to make your gospel be known and use it to be powerful. And don't let us empty the cross of its power, God. Will you speak through my words in these moments? I don't know what you want to do in everybody's life here. I don't know everybody here. But God, you do. You wove them together in their mother's womb. You knew they'd be in this room at this very moment. And God, you, you brought us to this spot for this exact time, for such a time as this. And God, I pray that you would move powerfully that you'd change lives. I, I pray that we wouldn't just look at somebody else's life being changed, but that you'd change our lives. And if we've been saved, that you'd keep changing us. And if you've done some amazing work of change in this last week, you wouldn't stop changing us. So you'd keep changing us, God, until we become what you desire for us to be like your son, Jesus Christ. God, keep moving in our midst. So there are some people that are doubters and skeptics that are here today. Remove the scales from their eyes like you did the Apostle Paul. God, do something miraculous in our midst today, please. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to start reading in verse 17. But before we get there, let me ask you this question. It's a big question, so I'll give you a moment to think about it. What's the most important thing in your life? What's the most important thing in your life? Could be a person, might be a concept more than anything else. It could be an experience that you've had. But what's the primary thing that you filter all other decisions through? Like if I asked you to prioritize your life, you wouldn't just put it as number one on the list, but it really shapes the whole list. Like everything kind of filters through the lens of whatever this important thing is in your life. 
And while you're processing and you're thinking about it, I'll just share with you a, a way a few other people, many of them you've heard of, have answered that question. Princess Diana said this, family is the most important thing in the world. And so that was her view on, on what's the most important thing. Kobe Bryant, basketball player, former basketball player, said the most important thing is to try and inspire people so that they can be great in whatever they want to do. So you've got family, trying to inspire and encourage other people. Uh, this next one's more powerful because this guy is dead. Steve Jobs. Listen to what he said. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. So he talks about this thing that helps center them and realize what matters most. Cristiano Ronaldo, famous soccer player, says this, winning is the most important to me. It's as simple as that. Well, you got to give him credit for it. At least it's clear. Like, that's his thing, right? John D. Rockefeller said, the most important thing for a young man is to establish a credit. What he means by that? A reputation, a character. For some of you, the most important thing in your life is who your friends are. What do people think of you? Fun is one of the most important and underrated ingredients in any successful venture. If you're not having fun, then it's probably time to call it quits and try something else. That's why Richard Branson is famous for being famous <laughs> or for being rich, one of those things. He says, it. He says, hey, if you're not having it, fun is the thing for him, and then he tells you how to filter through. If you're in something and it's not fun, quit. I'm so glad that Jerry and Scott didn't think that. But what is it for you? Fun family. could be. As I was thinking about it this week, I was thinking about myself, and like, what are things that have been like central in my life, and how has it impacted all the rest of my life? I remember when I first met my wife, Shanna. And some of you are in, in the dating phase of life. Some of you have fallen in love, and you're married, and some of you are kind of like, I'm done with dating. You kiss dating goodbye, whatever. You're done with all that. But think about when you first meet somebody, and you're infatuated with them, how all-consuming that is in your thought process. And I remember when I first met her, I got her number, and it was like, then when do I call? I don't want to call too soon and think I'm like super needy or something, but I don't want to wait too long. She thinks I'm not interested. And some of you are like, I don't know if I should send this. Just send the text, okay? And you start thinking, you're filtering. I was thinking about guys, dudes, we're so funny. Some of you, you didn't think about anything about what you wore until you met the girl that you fell in love with. You're like, I'm going to wear that shirt. I washed it like two months ago. It's probably good. Throw it on. And then you meet this girl, and you're like, I don't know, what is she going to think? Does she like this color? Does she like plaid? Does she like solids? What's the, and you start thinking about stuff, and then you start tying everything back to her. Like last week we talked about, you know, the Super Bowl and Tom Brady and the Patriots. Oh, that stink that they won again. Anyway, Tom Brady and the Patriots. And one of your buddies just says to you something like, how about Tom Brady and the Patriots winning the Super Bowl again? And in your mind, somehow you connect that back to the relationship with the girl. Like, they're good together, Tom and Bill. You know who else is good together? Me and my girl. And your friend's like, what are you talking about? You start, when somebody becomes important, it's so central. And ladies, I don't know what it's like for you. Like, I don't know. Do you just sit there and like imagine like his first, you know, your first name, his last name? What would my name sound like and say it multiple times? Or they probably have an app for this now. But do you imagine like what it would look like if you had babies together and mash up the faces? Man, our kids would be ugly. They'd have a five o'clock shadow. I'd hate that. But like somehow you're like, let's just leave that to God, okay? But I don't know what you think about, but they become central in your thoughts because they're most important. As a follower of Jesus Christ, shouldn't the cross of Christ be the most important thing to us? 
Like, I don't know what you thought of. I'm not trying to make you feel bad if you thought of something other than the cross of Christ. Maybe you thought of a family member or family or health or your money or whatever it was. I just want you to be honest with God and whatever your answer is. But as a follower of Jesus, you know what the problem is with the cross? That many of us think we graduate from the cross. Like, you trust Christ as your Savior, and you bowed your knee at the cross, and now either you check that box... Or the temptation is, now I want to know, like, deeper. Like, I want to go deeper. I want to know more. Like, what is there beyond the cross? You never graduate from the cross, just so you know. As a follower of Christ, shouldn't the cross of Christ be central? Today, what we're going to talk about is, what does it look like to be a cross-centered Christian? It's what Paul's talking about in the passage where we pick up from where we left off last week. If you were with us last week, we started this series called Letters to RDU. And in case you weren't here, the reason why we're calling the series Letters to RDU because of what's going on in the book of Corinth and the Corinthians and the church in Corinth is so similar to what's going on in our community. And we talked about a bunch of the similarities and the parallels last week. We talked about the unholy trinity that they were tempted to worship in that community because of what that community was like. There were three things. I don't know if you remember them, but they all start with an S. Sex, sports, and success. We talked about this unholy trinity that people would bow their knees to and success because Corinth was a place where these key trade routes would run through. And so it was, that, it was this upwardly mobile place that if you wanted to get success, it was a great place to move to. You could make some money, advance your career. You didn't have to live there forever. You could move somewhere else if you wanted to. Kind of this upwardly mobile spot. Does that sound like a place we know? And sports? There were people that would travel from all over the world to come to Corinth for the games they had. They were second in popularity only to the Olympic Games. And there's nothing wrong with sports. It's a hobby. Kind of this, this, this experience gets you healthy. But, but the problem is in our hearts, and we sang about it in the song today, is that we're prone to wander. And we're prone to take good things and make them the ultimate thing. And, and we've all probably done that with different stuff in our life. We've all done that. And some of us have done it with sports and sex. In Corinth, it's interesting because they had the temple of Aphrodite with a thousand temple prostitutes that would descend on the city from this hill every night and they'd sell their bodies as worship. It's easy in church to shake your head and be like, I can't believe anyone do that. Statistically, the majority of people in this room have intentionally looked for pornography in the last month. And I don't say that to condemn you, but I say it so that, that we realize this is us. The book that we're talking about here, the stuff that's happening, it's why he talks about topics that are so relevant to us as a church. What about sexual sin in the church? How do people get along with each other? What if you do get in a fight with another believer? Then what do you do? What about being single? What about being divorced? What about remarriage? What about spiritual gifts? What about legalism and elitism? And it's all here in this book. And last week where we, we scratched the surface, we started talking about how if we're going to be a great church, we've got to be gripped by God's grace. Amen? Not only gripped by God's grace, but then focused on our, our relationship, our fellowship with Jesus Christ, based on verse 9. And then we started talking about unity, and we saw that unity, it's not uniformity, doesn't mean everybody's the same, that unity doesn't happen by focusing on unity, but unity happens by focusing on our relationship with Christ. And as we get closer to Christ, we grow closer to one another, amen? And what happened at the end of that is that Paul was saying, I'm glad I didn't baptize very many of you. And it wasn't because he was against baptism. It's because he didn't want people having a special connection to him. The reason why there was disunity in this church was because some people were following Paul, and some people were following another teacher, and some people were following another guy. Some people said they were following Jesus. They were like the elitist, and they brought Jesus down to the level of a teacher. Paul's going, I don't want none of that. And then verse 17 is where we left off. We'll pick it up right there. It says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. 
And those of you who don't know what the gospel is, we'll, we'll read a very clear description of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And you can read that if you want to on your own. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first five verses, read it. He says, here's the gospel. The gospel is that you were a sinner. Christ died for you. Why did he die for me? Why Because God's wrath was coming after you. Somebody had to pay for your sins. It's either Jesus on the cross or it's you. And Jesus died for you and he rose from the dead. And he's offering you life. Paul says he preached that message. He says, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, and he quotes the Old Testament here, a passage from Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And he goes on to explain what he's talking about. So verse 18 was like his thesis sentence. Verse 19 is rooted in Scripture. Verses 20 through 25, which is what we'll read here right now, he's explaining. He says, where's the one who is wise? Rhetorical question. Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not, the God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, that's the cross of Christ, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but, contrast, we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block where we get, the, word, the Greek word for stumbling block there is the word scandal, where we get our word scandal from. It's a scandal to Jews and folly or foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So here in this passage, it's all contrast, all throughout. It's the wisdom, folly, wisdom, power. There's this contrast. And if you, you know if you want to see the difference in something, you put two contrasts next to each other, right? Like big and small. It's a really, really big guy and really small person. And it's like, I knew they were big, but wow, next to a small person, they're really big. Or, you know, hot and cold, fire and ice next to each other, tall and short. How many of you watched the State of the Union this week? You want to see differences next to each other? Republicans and Democrats... Right? Like one's, yeah! The other one's like stone face. And, the, the, how, and you, want to see, you want to do something really fun is have friends that are both Republicans and Democrats. Some of you couldn't bear that. But if you have that on your social media, then you scroll through. When something gets said, you're like, how do they respond? Versus how do they respond? It's like, how are they saying the opposite things? They said the same thing. It's amazing. It's the contrast that happened there. The contrasts that are happening in our passage are between wisdom and foolishness. And so we're putting these things together, but it's one thing that's showing the contrast. Some people think that one thing is wisdom. Some people think the yeah, one thing is foolishness. Now, most of us here, I bet you think you could, we've all done stupid stuff, but I bet you think you can recognize foolishness when you see it, right? Give you a little test. We can social media. There's a couple things I saw on social media this week. One right here. That's foolish, isn't it? You know what's really foolish about that to me? I mean, anybody could do it, right? You could just lose track of what's going on. But they kept going. Like, how fast are you going that you ripped the tank out of the ground? Next one here. I saw this by several people. Yep, took a second, especially right over in this section. I was wondering, I saw this by multiple people. I figured that maybe most of you had seen this this week. Most of the ones that I, most times I saw, it had a little, like, caption on it that said, this isn't safe, where are his gloves? Where is goggles? Like, that's not safe. Everybody knows that's not safe. The worst one I saw, though, was this one. That's a surge protector. I don't think it means what they think it means. 
Those are flip-flops that it's floating on. But don't worry, they're using a doorstop. Everybody's good. We're good. Total foolishness. And most of us think that we can recognize foolishness. But do you realize what's being talked about as foolish here is the cross of Christ? That what to, to some of you at least in this room is central in your whole life? And so for me to get up here and then to say to you that people believe the cross of Christ is foolish, some of you would be upset by that. But, but put it in perspective. What is this world's philosophy? No matter which vein you pick, you can pick a different world religion, you can pick whatever you want. It doesn't matter whether political party, none of that stuff matters. It all boils down to self, just so you know. And so one of the proverbs of our time, you do you. Be true to yourself. Like everything comes back to self. Self-seeking, self-centered, and let me tell you this, ultimately self-destructive. But you've got to get yours. Squeeze as much as you can out of this life while you can. You do you. You go, you go out. And you get, even if it's philanthropic stuff, it's because it makes you feel good. So tell somebody, you see how easy the unholy trinity is too, by the way? Sex, sports, and success. You tell somebody whose whole life is about success that their hope is a guy who was crucified somewhere in the Middle East, a guy who never held an office, a guy who never got a degree, a guy who never owned real estate, a guy who was born in an animal staple. And then the leaders of his day decided they were going to murder him in the most excruciating way possible by execution, the death penalty. And you go, look to that guy for the hope of the world. That's foolishness. If I want success, do you see how it's tempting to tweak the message, by the way, too? To tweak the gospel and empty of it as power. If you trust Jesus, he'll give you a Mercedes. We're talking about Jesus. Not the Jesus of the Bible, you're not. So we domesticate and we tweak and we change. But here's the reality. For those who know Jesus, for those who have trusted Jesus as their Savior, the cross of Christ becomes central because of three things, and I'll give you the preview of the message today. The cross of Christ calls us, the cross of Christ changes us, and the cross of Christ crushes us. It calls us, it changes us, and it crushes us. First, it calls us to salvation. Go back to verse 17, and we started reading there. For, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That alone is scary. So it's possible to preach the cross of Christ in a way that is emptied of its power. How is that? Remember the context. The context is this church is struggling with some people are following Apollos, some people are following Paul. Paul doesn't find that flattering. Paul's not trying to get followers. He's trying to point people to Jesus Christ. It's possible to preach the gospel in a way that draws attention to the messenger and not the message. And Paul's going, that's not what I did when I was among you. Why are people saying they follow Paul? I didn't come to you. Paul was brilliant. So a lot of times we talk about, you know, all these, Moses didn't have an education, Peter didn't have an education. Paul did. Paul could have used eloquent words. But what does he say? Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For, verse 18, that's a word of explanation. It could say because. Here's why. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And what we see here. Two different people groups looking at one thing, and to one, seems like foolishness. To the other, it's what transformed their lives. Contrast. But what we also learn here is that God, when God views the world, He breaks everybody into two different categories. 
There are two categories that God, when he looks at, now we view people, we, and we, even our own, we get our own little cliques, our own hobbies, our own subgroups, subcultures of the world, and, and all that kind of stuff. And we view people through all kinds of different lenses that God's not looking at. Do you notice it's not about where you came from? Sorry, Ancestry.com, 23andMe, all the DNA tests that are out there. Your, your DNA didn't have anything to do with the way that God's viewing you. Your race, what part of the world you came from, your hobbies, your interests, what building you're in on a Sunday morning. Did you notice it didn't have anything? Your political affiliation. When God's viewing the world, it doesn't have anything to do with those two categories. It's these other categories. The first one is this, those who are perishing. Those who are in the process. Notice the tense. Perishing. And then the other, those who are being saved. Being saved. So what are these two categories? The image I get when I think about those who are perishing is a group of people that are on a train and they're having a good time, and they're eating food and drinking drinks and talking with one another, but they don't realize that they're on tracks that are headed towards a bridge, and the bridge is out. And when they crash, they're not going to die. They're going to be imprisoned and then tortured forever. That's those that are perishing. But you, you think about their wisdom, and their, their wisdom is the wisdom of the world. And so the idea of looking to the cross, that, that's utter foolishness. In a room like this, I know not everybody here is a follower of Jesus, but you came to a church, like you expect us to talk about Jesus and say, well, God's right and all those kinds of things. It's easy to judge that some people actually think that the cross is foolishness. But don't forget that Jesus' own disciples, when they first heard about the cross, rejected the cross. Remember Peter, like if you read the Gospels, read Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 8, it's interesting what happens is that Jesus has already done a bunch of miracles. He's raised, he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He, he calmed the storm. He, he, there was a guy that was possessed by a legion of demons, and Jesus cast the demons all out. He showed he's got power over our enemy. He's got power over death. He's got power over the, any difficulty you can experience in life. Amen? But, but he hasn't asked them the most important question. In, in Mark chapter 8, they're walking along. They're going to the next place they're going to be at. And Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And it's just kind of like a casual conversation question. He asks them, say, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. Those are interesting answers. John the Baptist got his head chopped off. Looks like he got a head. Doesn't seem like that works. Elijah's been dead for a really long time, but they believed that Elijah would come before the Christ. And so maybe they thought that some say the prophets. And then Jesus gets to the point where he asks the most important question that anybody can be asked and everybody has to answer. The way you answer the question determines your destiny. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And let me tell you something. The guy who speaks up, Peter, he's a moron. Okay? He's, I love him. Like, I connect with the guy. He's, sometimes he just starts talking, and then he thinks, did I really say that? Like, I, I can identify with the guy. He's an idiot. He says stupid stuff all the time. But in this moment, in this moment, God speaks through him. And he gets it right. He says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And then, and then Jesus starts to talk about what that means. And for the first time, he starts to tell them about the cross. He says, I'm going to be handed over by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and they're going to murder me. And three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. And then Peter goes back into Peter mode. You see how it can happen? Like for one second, you're walking with Jesus, and the next second, he rebukes Jesus. This isn't the message, but a little tip. Don't ever rebuke Jesus, okay? He rebukes Jesus, and then Jesus says to him, some of you know this, get behind me, Satan. 
For you don't have in mind the things of God. In other words, you've got the wisdom of the world. There's a wisdom. You don't have the wisdom of God, the cross of Christ. But instead, the wisdom of man. That's the wisdom of this world. So they couldn't, Peter, the Jews couldn't fathom a crucified Messiah. There's a verse in the book of Deuteronomy that actually says, anyone who's hung on a tree is cursed. How can you have a Messiah that's cursed? Their view of the Messiah was the Messiah was going to come and free them from Roman oppression. He was going to break the bondage of the taxation that was happening. He was going to give them political freedom. He was going to give them a bunch of money. He was going to deliver their idols. Do you see the problem with that? He said, the Jews, they want power. They want miracles. How about the fact that God put on flesh, died, and rose again? No, no, no. We want our idols. So the Greeks, Greeks want wisdom. This is what we read. Greeks want the wisdom. Okay, well, that makes sense. Why is it that we want wisdom? Because we think we can control what we can explain. And at the root of both is pride. At the root of both is self. You see, it's idolatry that we all bow our knees to. We, want to, we don't want to say that... You, remember last week I told you that when Paul was in Corinth, he wrote the book of Romans. You know what Romans chapter 1 says? Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Did you see our passage this week? It said, not that God's wisdom is better than man's wisdom, but that God's wisdom makes man's wisdom foolish. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship creation rather than the creator. Do you know what's happening at churches all around the world today? Is that people are using the name of Jesus and they're talking about somebody that they've created in their own image. Do you know, do you know what people wanted to do with Jesus while he was here? Make him be the kind of God they wanted. Do you know what we're doing? We're making a God like us. Have you ever heard somebody say this statement before? I could never worship a God who allows bad stuff to happen, who whatever the thing is, who would send people to hell, who, do you know what they're saying? I can't worship a God who doesn't do things the way I would do things. That's idolatry. I want a God who will give me my idols or I want a God who will be my idol. And just pause for a second and if it doesn't blow your brain up, think about this. What must that sound like to God? So you, you will worship me as long as I deliver idols to you. Do you think God ever thinks when, when he hears people talking about God must be like them in order for him to worship them that he ever thinks that I made you in my image. You don't get to make me in yours. When you think about the cross of Christ and even just from, from a human perspective if you're a parent, you ever think to yourself, God, you're omnipotent, you're all creative, you could have created, you could have done anything and you killed your son? It's foolishness to those who are perishing. Let me read you one more verse from the Old Testament. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. It'll be on the screen. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. That's what happens with that train when it gets to the bridge and the bridge is out. There's a way that seems right, but it ended in death. But there's another category of people, and I've read it already, but I'm going to read to you again verse 24. And if you mark in your Bible, you might underline the word called. It's those who are called. Remember, I said the point is that God, the cross calls us to salvation. I'll start in verse 22. It says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, doesn't matter about your race, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So who are called? 
Well, it's back in verse 18 is where God put all, all people in two categories, those who are perishing, those who are being saved. You know, until you experience the day of redemption, your salvation is not totally done. And so it's those that are being saved. Who are the called? The called are the ones that are being saved. What does it mean to be called? Well, the call is interesting because it's an effectual call. What I mean by that is the words, actually, all of you have already heard me define, share the gospel today. Some people will just hear those words. God's not willing that any should perish. He wants everybody to be called to him. But some people, the words have a draw to them. It's kind of like this. I love, John Piper says it like this. John Piper says, the call creates what it commands. So the words themselves have power. The call creates what it commands. And so I know some of you have teenagers. God bless you. It's awesome. We're in that tween. We're like almost, we're kind of at the, the cusp of that. And, and I know some of you have teenagers. Our youth group keeps getting bigger and bigger. So I know a bunch of you have teenagers. Let's, let's just imagine. It's a hypothetical situation. Probably didn't happen to anybody. Let's just imagine that yesterday was Saturday. They didn't have school. You woke up. You drank your coffee. You read your Bible. You read the paper. You did some stuff around the house, whatever it is that you do. And then you looked at your watch. You're like, it's about noon. I haven't seen my teenager yet. You went to their room. They're still sleeping. So you said, wake up! And they went, covers flew everywhere. And they woke up. You didn't just say words. The words created what you commanded, that they would get up. A Bible example would be when Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus, and Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days, and Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. The words had power in them. See, the call, when God calls you to himself out of darkness into light, out of sin into righteousness, out of whatever it is, you're out of that train and into life. The call calls us to salvation. Several of you said you saw the State of the Union, so I don't have to share a bunch of details, but you probably got to the, the point in the speech where uh, President Trump was talking about the Holocaust survivors. Did you see that? People see that part? Okay, some of you, some of you don't want to admit it. I don't know, whatever. But there was a point in his speech where Donald Trump was speaking and he, he looked over to where his wife was at. She was in the gallery and right behind her were some soldiers and some Holocaust survivors. And he told the story. One guy's name was Judah. It was his 81st birthday that day. And so all, all the people there saying happy birthday to him. But he was telling a story about something that happened 75 years earlier. So he's about five or six years old. And he and his family had spent 10 months in a concentration camp as Jews. That's hell on earth. And President Trump said that, they, he, that Judah could still remember when they boarded a train as a family, got on this train, and they were headed to another camp. Now, that's what they told them, what President Trump didn't tell us. That's what they would tell people when they were going to go kill them. The camp they were headed to was Auschwitz. What, what President Trump didn't tell us there, too, is they had eight gas chambers at Auschwitz, 46 ovens to kill people. They could dispose of 4,400 people a day at Auschwitz. And so Judah gets on this train with his family headed towards Auschwitz. And the train gets stopped. And they embrace themselves for the worst. Until Judah's dad says, it's the Americans. It's the Americans. Salvation has come. Now can you imagine, can you imagine being little Judah, being a little boy or being a little girl? Having spent 10 months in that prison camp, getting put on this train. You don't know where you're headed. And then the train stops. And they call your name. That's salvation. Amen. You, you were on a way that seemed right to man, but in the end it leads to death. 
And then God called you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, the way Ephesians says it, but God made you alive in Christ. See, the wages of sin is death. So anybody who hasn't had those wages paid, the power that's over you, sin is a power that rules over you, and it's going to call due at some point at the end of your life. And somebody's got to pay for those sins. It's either Jesus when he died on the cross for you, or it's you, and you'll pay for all of eternity separated from God. See, God can't have sin in his presence. He's a holy God, and so somebody has to pay, and Jesus Christ paid at the cross. But if you thought your whole life the cross of Christ was foolishness, and you went your own way, there's a way that seems right to man. In the end, it leads to separation from God. But those of you who know Jesus, he called you. And that call had an effect on your life. And you were woken up from dead to it like Lazarus in the tomb came out. You were on that train and you got called off and you didn't even know how bad what you were about to experience was. But not only does the cross call us to salvation, the cross also changes us. I read to you through verse 25. Look at verse 26, our second point, the cross changes us. Look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you, and if you write in your Bible, you might underline this word, were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. And let me just pause there and say this. It doesn't say not any of you. It says not many of you. Because what we're going to find out in Corinth is there were rich and poor. This church, it was a diverse church. There were movers and shakers. There were lazy people. There were Jews. There were Greeks. There were all kinds of different nationalities that were there. It wasn't about that it was all just the down and outers. I read one woman this week, she was born of noble birth, and she said, I was saved by an M. She was referring to this passage. It says, not many, not any. But what Paul's saying here is, God didn't come looking just for the pretty people. Amen? And look what he did. In the way that he used the cross was a demonstration of the cross. But God chose what is foolish in the world, that's talking about us, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. In other words, even the nobodies to bring to shame the somebodies. So that, here's why, here's the purpose, verse 29, so that no human being, none of us, might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are, you can underline this, talk about change, in Christ Jesus. Do you know what it means to be in Christ There are whole books, that we could talk about a sermon about being in Christ, there are whole books that are written about what it means to be in Christ. It means this, you were separated from God, now you're in union with God. Like, you're hitched up together, you're you're in lockstep with God. You were were lost, you were without hope, without God, now you've got hope and you've got God. You were lost, now you are found. You were lost, now you are loved. You were condemned, now you are free. Is anybody free? The cross changes you. So to be in Christ means that you're no longer in condemnation. You've been set free. You're no longer sick in your sin. Did you read that verse earlier that, that, that Ashley read to us from Isaiah chapter 53? It's by his stripes, by his wounds, you've been healed from what? Some, you, don't, you don't all have cancer. You don't all have heart disease. What are you healed from? The sickness of sin. You were dirty. You've been cleansed. If you're in Christ, he says you're you were these things, now you're in Christ. And look at the rest of the verse, verse 30. Who became to us wisdom, talking about Jesus Christ, wisdom from God, and then underline these words, 
righteousness and sanctification and redemption. <laughs> there you've got life change, past, present, and future. Righteousness, you're like, well, I'm not righteous. No, you're not righteous. But God declared you righteous when you trusted Christ as your Savior. It's called justification because he saw you through the blood of Christ so your sins have been cleansed from you so he chooses to see you the way he sees his son, Jesus Christ. That's what happened when you bowed your knee to Jesus when you were saved. And then the next word, sanctification, that's a fancy Bible word to say he's making you more and more like Jesus. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, he who began a good work in you, be faithful to complete that work, that's, that's how he is changing you, present tense. Redemption, redemption's an interesting word. It actually comes from the slave trade, which there were slaves in this church. And it's when a slave was bought out of slavery and redeemed, set free. That's what it refers to what's going to happen. Our redemption is complete. Why does it say being saved? The day of redemption, the day that Jesus comes back, or you die and you get to go be with Jesus. And you know what else the Bible calls that? Glorification. So you got justification, sanctification, glorification. It's that you have been changed, you are being changed, and that you will be changed. Amen? Anybody tracking with that? So the cross changes us. I love how Paul sets it up here when you go all the way back to verse 26 and he talks about what you were. Some of you, can you think, some of you have been Christians for a long time. Can you think about what you were before you knew Jesus? And some of you, 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 you've looked at other people's stories and you hear people share life change stories about how they were in prison, how they sold drugs, how they did adultery, whatever it was. And you think, I wish I had a story like that. No, you don't. Because there's a ripple effect, there's consequences, there's other things in their life from that. But do you realize how powerful your story is? You have a story of preservation. It's because of the cross, you weren't doing those things. That's power. And so some of you might need to think about what would have been had not the cross changed your life. But think about this, what you were, I think this week, my wife texted me in the middle of the day, one of my daughters had come home from school, and she was talking about a boy in her class that kept getting in trouble that she reached out to, and he's got some tough stuff going on at his house. And when my daughter was sharing that with her mom, my wife, she started crying. And then my daughter said, why are you crying, mom? She said, because that boy is your dad. That's what he was like. And I remember thinking, thinking back, how that day I just started thinking about what a troubled kid I was. And I didn't even know it. Like, I would get in so much trouble in school. I, I thought the teachers just liked me. Said, Scott, you come sit, put your desk up here by my desk. Oh, man, they just like my company. I got tied to my chair one time. Like, you go to jail for that now. But I got tied to my chair one time in elementary school. I got suspended from school. I actually got expelled from school. I've shared with you before about doing drugs, that I did drugs before I knew Jesus and sold drugs, did all that kind of stuff. I was telling a guy after service, first service a couple weeks ago, he had a guest with him. God was working in that person's heart, breaking their heart and bringing them to Jesus. And they were going down a path, though, that was just destructive. And I, I started telling him a story about a time when I was out. I did LSD one night. Had a bad experience, bad trip, and my friends didn't know what to do with me, so they dropped me off at my mom's house. Then my mom didn't know what to do with me. She thought I was going crazy, so she called the ambulance. I went to the emergency room. My dad picked me up. My dad picked me up, took me home. Now, here's the deal. My dad, he did drugs too, so it wasn't like he was like some moral example to me, but I remember sitting in his kitchen and him having a talk with me. He said, why do you have to learn everything the hard way? It was like one of those moments where it just like smacked me in the face like why are you such a fool well there's a way that seems right 
I'm just going to get mine and do my thing. But in the end, that was the beginning of God calling me off that train. And I think about where I'm at today. I think to myself, if, if people who I knew then that didn't know about Jesus coming into my life, like wandered into our church and then sat there and were like, what's he doing up there? <laughs> Here's what I know. I'm not everything I want to be. I'm not everything God's designed me to be. He's not done with me yet. But I'm not who I used to be. What about you? Have you been changed? Like, I don't know where you're at in your story, but can I tell you, I can give you a guarantee, a promise, the cross can change you. And so some of you might hear me reading this, and you're like, yeah, the cross is foolishness. That is ridiculous. I just want to be successful. The cross can change you. God can change you today, by the way. It can change who you are. You come into this room, some of you come into this room today, and you're depressed, and you're defeated, and you're done, and you're like, I wasn't even sure if I was going to get out of bed today. It's just a miracle that I'm here. Let me tell you something. The cross can change you. And some of you, your marriages, you watch that story of Scott and Jerry, and your marriage is on the brink of divorce. God can change your marriage. God can change your life. You might, have, you might be dying of cancer. I don't know if God will cure you from your cancer, but I know that God can use your cancer to change you because the cross changes you. And it might be the cancer that actually drives you to the cross of Christ. The cross can change everything. I can just start listening to stuff. Some of you are lost. The cross can change you. Some of you are apathetic in your faith. And you think, oh, I've, done, I've trusted Jesus, and I've read my Bible, and I've served, and I'm just kind of kicking into cruise control. Now, the cross can change you. God don't want you apathetic. And, let me, and I know something about all of you, even though I don't even know all of you. He's not done with any of you. Do you know how I know that? Because none of you are just like Jesus yet. <laughs> if you were, I would have heard about you before this service. <laughs> and so here's something you need to know. The cross can change you. Amen? And so whatever's going on in your job, the cross can change you. Whatever's going on in your life, the cross can change you. Whatever's going on in your mind, the cross can change you. When you start to put the cross like that, the teenager would do when they first meet the person they're infatuated with, and that's all they can think about it, and the cross, and you start to think to yourself, how does this decision, how does it impact the cross? How does, how does the cross change what's going on here? And so I've got a broken relationship with somebody. How does the cross impact that? Or I've got two good things, two good opportunities in my life, and I've got to decide which one to go with. How does the cross impact that? And you start to filter things through the cross. See, you don't ever graduate from the cross of Christ. If you graduated from the cross of Christ, guess what's happened? You've fallen into a different religion. You know how the legalists get in so much trouble? It's because you think that you start your, your relationship with God by faith, and then you figure it's on you to figure out the rest of it. See, the cross of Christ is central to every mature Christian. The cross changes you. Did you see the video of Darian and Scott? God's still changing people. The cross can change you. Here's something for you to know. If you're sitting there and thinking to yourself, I've been, when you talked about pornography, that's me. And that was me last night. And I've repented. And I don't want to do it anymore. And, I'm, and then I go back. Or maybe it's not porn. Maybe it's something else. Alcohol, whatever it is. Lying, whatever it is. The cross changed all of human history. The cross can certainly change you. Don't think this doesn't apply to you. Because the cross changes us. Amen? Because for, for some of you, if you, don't, if you don't amen that, if your spirit doesn't say yes to then maybe you're in a different category than you think you're in. Because you know how I know the cross changes us? Not only has it changed me, but I read the Bible. Look at what it calls the cross in this passage. It's the power of God. It doesn't say wisdom in some spots where you'd think it would say wisdom. Look at what it says. Go back to verse 17, the first verse I read to you. For Christ 
Do not send me to baptize, Paul talking, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of, not its wisdom, its power. We used to talk about eloquent wisdom. Why didn't he say wisdom? Power. Then verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly, foolishness, to those who are perishing, category one. But to us who are being saved, it is the, what's the opposite of foolishness? Wisdom. He doesn't say wisdom. It's the power of God. Verse 24, in case you think he's saying power is more important than wisdom, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and he uses synonymously, equal footing, the wisdom of God. In chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, he talks about how he preached and how he didn't try to convince people and didn't try to manipulate people, but he just presented the cross of Christ. He says, in my speech and my message, we're not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that, here's the reason, your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men. Jesus didn't come so you could have a new philosophy for life. He came so you could have new life, but in the power of God. So what is the power he's talking about here? Is it the power, he says in this demonstration of the Spirit, is it the power of miraculous healing? Is it the power of speaking in tongues? Probably is it in the, the power of Jesus Christ himself? We're going to read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If Jesus Christ didn't raise from the dead, all Christians are wasting their life. They're the biggest fools. But that's the ultimate demonstration of power. Jews want a sign? He raised from the dead. What sign do you want? Probably talking about that. But definitely, certainly, in light of who he's talking to, in light of what he's just said in verse 26, to get up to verse 31, he is talking about the power to change a life. You're not what you once were, is evidence. The power of God is still working. You were lost, you're now found. You were, like, how could you feel loved when everybody's living for themselves? But God loved you, and you've been found and redeemed and cleansed. The cross changes us. It calls us to salvation, but it's not done there. It's not just past. It's also present and also future. You know what else the cross does? And I I thought about outline today doing 101, salvation, 201, changing, sanctification, and then here's 301. It's humiliation. I'm looking at mature Christianity. What does a mature Christian really look like? I told you the cross crushes you. The cross crushes our pride. The cross crushes our pride. I'm going to read you uh, verse 31 again. I'll read verse 30 and 31 just to set it in context. It says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. I'm talking about all this change. And you became, he became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as is written, let the one who boasts, he's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 9. We don't have time to go to Jeremiah chapter 9. You go read it on your own. Let the wise man boast his wisdom. Strong, don't let him boast his wisdom, his strength, the rich man and his riches. The word that's used there. It's not just boasting like we think about, bragging about, being cocky. It's real close to saying have trust in, have faith in. You're going to boast about something, boast in this, that you know me, is what Jeremiah 9 says. I don't have to go read it. I just told you what it says. But he says here, he just gives a little quote. It says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And there's the summary of the whole verse. I'm going to say a statement to you. I want you to test it. You can rebuke me if you think it's wrong. Send me an email, whatever, Facebook, however you want to do that. It's impossible to be a cross-centered Christian and be proud. I didn't say it's impossible to be a Christian and be proud, that you can't be proud and still trust Jesus. You're I didn't say that. It's impossible to be a mature Christian and be proud. It's, it's impossible to be a cross-centered Christian and be proud. It's an oxymoron. 
Think about it. Deafening silence. Two words that don't go together, right? Falsely true. Some of you may be saying these things. You're clearly confused. Two of you got that. All right. There we go. A proud, mature Christian. Those words shouldn't even go together. But we know what boasting is. We've seen it. I Googled this week, greatest boast of all time. The whole first page was about the same guy, just so you know. He delivered the State of the Union. I'm not trying to disrespect our president. I was supposed to pray for him. But he said things like, I have the highest IQ. You're, and then he starts comparing IQs. I don't know what his IQ is, but he always talks about his IQ. He was asked about foreign affairs, and he asked, who are you consulting about foreign affairs? He said, I'm, I'm talking to myself. I'm really smart. <laughs> That's called boasting, just so you know. It's not just the president. We talked about basketball last week. LeBron James is telling everybody now he's the greatest of all time. And he doesn't have anything else to prove. <laughs> How about you let us decide? <laughs> Muhammad Ali, I am the greatest of all time. Like you could just, you can grab, those are obvious, so obvious, most of us would never do that. But you know what we do? There's actually a term for it now. It's in the dictionary. It's an official term. This isn't just like millennial slang language. Humble brag. You know what humble brag is? Let me give you a church example of humble brag. Church example of humble brag is, please pray for me. That's a great way to start if you want to humble brag. Please pray for me. I'm serving at so many spots in our city, I don't even know where to go next. That's humble brag. Look at all the stuff. Look at me. Look at all me. So a, a non-church one might be, you know, I just, a lady, I just got a, a ponytail and sweatpants on. These guys keep hitting on me everywhere. Life is so tough. Oh, we feel really bad for you. No one told me when I bought this Ferrari, the police were going to harass me. Oh, we feel so bad for you and your Ferrari. That's humble bragging, just FYI. Start name dropping and all that stuff. How can you be cross-centered? Just think about how the cross should humble us. First of all, you needed the cross. Like, that's how bad it was. Here, there's a problem for us understanding this passage of Scripture and our culture because the cross means something special to us. It's sentimental. Like, we look at the cross and think about what Jesus did for us. They didn't have that. The cross was an execution instrument. Like, when you came in here today, if you looked up, you saw our logo for Southbridge. There's a cross in the middle of our logo. The city of Raleigh, when we were renovating this building, didn't give us a hard time about that at all. They expect that on a church. What if we had put an electric chair on the outside of our building? I think there's like some code violation. Vern, maybe you know. Maybe we put a new stuff, like a rope hanging out there off the thing. Or maybe, what if we did this? What if we put somebody with a shotgun blowing somebody's brains out? Some of you are like, that's too far. Okay, now we're getting close. There's a reason why it was a scandal to Jews. It was offensive. Anyone who dies on a tree is cursed. That's right, he was cursed for you. It was an execution. It, was, it, wasn't just the, it wasn't just smarter than God's wisdom or man's wisdom. God's wisdom makes man's wisdom look like foolishness. So that means that God's wisdom to man looks like foolishness. But when you get it, it flips the script. Humble living, a mature Christian, you know what that looks like? It's like John the Baptist. Some of you are familiar with John the Baptist. His famous statement is this, less of me, more Jesus. You need to look at not humble bragging, not boasting. People, he had a ton of followers. Everybody was coming to John the Baptist to get baptized. John wasn't interested in his reputation. He wanted to point people to Jesus. That's what's happening to Paul here when people are coming to follow Paul, and Paul's going, "No, that's I'm not. I didn't die for you. Like you need Jesus." And so you see these mature Christians in Scripture, and what you see is it's less of them, more about Jesus. 
When you can live like that, it changes the way you live and what you live for. I could tell you stories. We talked about Tom Brady last week. He did a famous interview one time of 60 Minutes. He'd gotten everything he wanted. It's like, there's got to be more to life than this. If you look up millionaires, you can find the statistics on how many millionaires kill themselves. Astronomical. Like, I can tell you about a bunch of people that got everything they wanted in life and felt like life was empty. But you know what's interesting to me? is people that are clearly not Christians, clearly living according to this world's wisdom, and they die happy. Like Hugh Hefner. You have to founder of Playboy. You know, he said one time, he said, the civilizing force in our world is not religion, it is sex. He said, I couldn't have dreamt of a, of a better life, a sweeter life than the way he got. How's that working for you now, Hugh? You were on a train. It seemed right. In the end, it leads to death. And then, and then I think about people, like the missionaries. Our elders had dinner with our missionaries in China on Monday night, and we we're talking to them. And I'm sitting next to this guy. I'm not going to say his name because uh, to protect him. It's not because I forgot his name for anybody that needs to like, Did you even know his name? I know his name. Um, these missionaries, he's an attorney who one time sat in a meeting where they were presenting a presentation about China and thought, who would ever want to live in China? <laughs> Be careful. Step by eye. He said his uncle told him, his uncle told him there's two things that, that last forever, God's word and people. Invest your lives in people according to God's word. That's, that lasts for eternity. And now, rather than going into his you know, golden years and working on his golf score and sitting on the beach, he's living in China, bringing medical care to people you and I probably don't ever even think of. Orphans, the least of the least, the lowest of the low, risking his life. The reason I can't say his name so that he doesn't get imprisoned in this communist country trying to care for the lowest of the low. Now, here's the reality. Somebody's wasting their life. Either the people live according to this world philosophy like Hugh Hefner or the Chinese missionary. But here's the temptation for most of the people in this room. There's got to be a middle path. I'm going to find them. the Chinese missionary. They're too extreme. Of course Hugh Hefner was wrong. But I'm going to get as much from this world as I can. I'm going to do a few things for Jesus. Not based on anything I say. Could you read the Bible and come up with that being what God has for you? Would the cross-centered Christian ever come to that conclusion? What is the most important thing to you? Go back to the question I asked you at the beginning. What's the most important thing to you? Is the cross, did the cross call you? Maybe it's calling some of you today to salvation. I'll give you an opportunity in just a second. Is the cross humbling you? Is the cross changing you? If so, let's pray. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Everybody here with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, the worship team's going to come. They're going to lead us in a song in just a minute. And God might be speaking to your heart. If he hasn't spoken to your heart, maybe you need to ask him right now, God, do you, do you have a message for me today? And some of you need to respond to him. I'm going to pray for us, but let me tell you what's going to happen. In just a moment, I'm going to have a stand up. We're going to sing some songs. If God's speaking to your heart today, don't ignore that. The cross of Christ might be calling you to salvation today. Maybe you've been a skeptic. Maybe you've wondered, if I just got these answers, if, I could, if you could just explain God, then you'd believe in him. If you could just explain God, he wouldn't be God. His ways and your ways are not the same. Maybe he's calling you to salvation today. Let me tell you what's going to happen in just a moment. Uh, with these stairs that I'm going to walk down, on my right, on your left, there's going to be some elders and elders' wives and deacons and deaconesses and different people from the prayer team that are there, male and female, people that we trust, people you can trust. If you want to trust Christ as your Savior, will you go talk to one of them? Some of you might have a burden that you want somebody to pray for. You can come up here and talk to them. It might not have anything to do with anything I've said in this message, but you want somebody to pray for you, they're going to be here, they're going to be available to talk to you. And some of you just want to talk to God. 
You could stand in your seat, or you know what you could do is you could come down here to the front and kneel down at this stage like it's an altar. And I promise you, if you come down here and you kneel down, nobody will mess with you, just you and the Lord. Some of you, God might be speaking to you about some things he wants to change in your life, and you need to lay some things at the altar. Maybe your pride, maybe a sin habit, maybe difficulty that's going on in your life, and you just want to lay it down at the altar. And God can do that work. I'm going to give you an opportunity for that. I'm going to pray for us. Father, I pray that you would speak to hearts right now what it is that you want to do. And and I don't want to manipulate anybody. I don't want anybody to just make an emotional decision. Father, I pray if there's somebody who you're calling to salvation right now that you wouldn't let them let that get out of their mind, that they wouldn't just reject that. Think about something else. Think about what comes next, whatever that is. God, I pray right now you convict them of their sin. See, the, the gospel, you've all, we've all sinned. We fall short of the glory of God, but he gives us this gift, his son Jesus. And the Bible says if you believe that his son Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you call upon him to be Lord of your life, that you will be saved. You've got to surrender your life to him. You've got to believe that he died for your sins and surrender your life to him. And if you need to do that today, then don't miss that opportunity. And Father, I pray for those of us that you're changing. I know that's all of us here. You don't leave us here. and We don't stay neutral. We either go further from you or we come closer to you. God, draw us closer to you. We want to draw near to you. And we know that you promise if we draw near to you, you'll draw near to us. And Father God, I pray that everybody who walks out these doors today would be closer to you than they were before they came in. Father God, I thank you for those that are, maybe they're just coming to church for the first time. God, I pray you speak to their hearts and you just tell them how much you love them. Father, I pray for some of us that need to be humbled. Scary prayer, but will you humble us? In Jesus' name I pray.